Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, where we discuss the ideas, people, and events that have made America what it is today. We believe that by understanding our history and our principles, we can better live up to the promise of the American founding and preserve our ongoing experiment in self-government. Welcome to The American Idea. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of The American Idea. Today, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. We're, of course, going to be talking about an interesting American and an American president. We're going to be talking with someone who knows this person as well as perhaps anyone in, in the country, but it's not a professor exactly. We are joined today by Todd Arrington. He is the site manager for the James A. Garfield Historical Site, which is part of our National Park Service. Uh, Todd has been a site at the Garfield Historical Site for 14 years and been part of the Park Service for 24 years. And I know some of our listeners think of the National Park Service, they think, of course, of uh, you know the Grand Canyon, they think of Yellowstone, they think we don't always associate it with the important work that the Park Service does in preserving our national heritage and national historical sites. But Todd has played a really important role there in preserving the life, the legacy, the memory of James Garfield. Todd Arrington, welcome to the American Idea. Great. Thanks for having me on. Glad to be with you today. Let me just ask, let me start with this for our from our listeners. We we have a lot of pretty historically informed listeners. They probably have all heard of James Garfield, but not many of them perhaps have studied him very deeply. Why is James Garfield worth knowing? Well, that's a great question. Uh, I mean, I think the probably the easiest answer is simply he was president of the United States. It was very brief, unfortunately, uh, and and the 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 story of uh, why he was assassinated is is fascinating in and of itself, and it plays into a lot of the larger issues that were going on in the country at that time. Uh, but you know. Garfield lived for almost 50 years. He was two months shy of turning 50 when he died. Uh, and so he he did a lot of other things besides be president for what ended up being only six and a half months total. So I always tell people, you know, the Garfield's presidency really was one of the least interesting things about him. He was, you know, a son of Northeast Ohio. He was uh, an abolitionist. He was, uh, you know, he volunteered to fight for the Union uh, in the Civil War. He was very vocal about the fact that slavery was the war's root cause. And then when he went to Congress, he was a uh, he was a very active uh, and loud voice for civil rights legislation for formerly enslaved people. Uh, and you know he was very knowledgeable about fiscal issues, and he was passionate about education. And um, and then of course there's the personal side. He was a husband and a father. You know he was a human being. Uh, we tend to look at people uh, from the past as 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 you know uh, icons or you know people you know that we only see etched in stone and in fact they were they were human beings and so he he had relationships too so the, all of these things together I think just make him a really fascinating person that people should want to know more about. So tell us, take us to the beginning of Garfield's remarkable American story. What's James Garfield's childhood like? Well, he was born here in, in Northeast Ohio uh, in what is now Moreland Hills near Cleveland. It was called Orange Township at the time. Uh, but uh, he was born into a, a family that was fairly poor. You know, they didn't have a lot of money. He was the youngest child. 
Uh, and then his father died when when uh, the future president was only about 18 months old. So he grew up basically in in what we would call today a single parent household. And he was uh, born in 1831. Is that right? 1831. Yes. So actually, we're we're staring down the the we're staring down the uh, the barrel of his bicentennial coming up here uh, in about eight years. So uh, we're a lot of the planning and programming we're trying to you know work on now is is geared towards looking to that. But anyway, yeah, he he grew up. He was very close with his mother again because she was his only his only parent. Uh, he 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 grew up and uh, decided as a as a teenager that he wanted to to live the life of a sailor. And so uh, the furthest he ever got, he never learned how to swim, of course. So he he uh, he went and worked on the Ohio and Erie Canal for a while, uh, actually pulling you know uh, uh, as like a tow boy on the canal, you know, pulling helping canal boats get through. Uh, the Ohio and Erie Canal down around what's now Cuyahoga Valley National Park, uh, and uh, didn't didn't stay with that very long. You know, fell in the river, got sick, went home. His mother decided that he should go uh, become uh, get educated instead, and so she spent what little money she had to send him to school. And so he he went to school and found he had a real talent for academics. Uh, so he went first to the Geauga Seminary, then on to the Western Reserve Eclectic Institute, which is now Hiram College. Uh, and then eventually on up to Williams College in Williamstown, Massachusetts. Um, so he was very, very intelligent, worked very hard at, at, at his studies. Uh, I think probably was one of the most purely, you know, intelligent people ever to sit in the Oval Office. He spoke several different languages. He became a teacher. You know, he taught several different subjects. So really just a, a just a just a real uh, a real academic uh, intellectual mind. We, we think of Garfield, I think, as, of course, president and a politician. Did he come from a family that was political? Well, he came from a family. He came from a family that I would say was more religious than political. Uh, he was actually he was a member of the Disciples of Christ, uh, which is, of course, still an active uh, Protestant denomination. And, uh, you know, a, a lot of a lot of um, disciples really didn't didn't purposely didn't get involved in politics. They didn't think it was appropriate uh, for, you know, for a true Christian. Uh, and Garfield actually felt that way uh, as a, as a young, you know, up into his young adulthood. Um, and then he kind of, as he started to get into his twenties, uh, started to pay attention a little bit more to what was going on in the country. And when it came time for him to choose where to go to college, uh, you know, he, a lot of people thought he would go to a college that was affiliated with the Disciples of Christ, and he actually decided not to do that. He made a very conscious decision to uh, to go up to New England, to go to, to Williams, which is in Massachusetts, and he even said, you know, he wanted to get into and experience the abolitionist atmosphere. Uh, and so his 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 mind was already sort of coming around to the idea that, you know, slavery was a major issue in the country, and 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 it was, in his view, uh, an abomination, uh, illegal, immoral, uh, and he wanted to go to New England because that was where sort of the, that was the hotbed of, of American abolition, the abolition movement. And, and so he made that very conscious decision to, to do that. And that's when he then, while a student at Williams, really became very, very actively interested in and following politics and even thinking about at some point, perhaps even participating in, in politics himself. So his early abolitionist views, are they rooted in his religious views? 
Yes, I, his religious views are certainly part of that, uh, and 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 uh, as well as his understanding of of history and and his view of of the Constitution. He believed that that the constant, you know, that that slavery was immoral and and it was uh, it was an illegal institution. Um, you know, it, we have to also. You know, I, I mentioned a minute ago that we tend to look at, at historical figures as as these sort of you know figures cut in, in marble um, that denies them their humanity. I think, and and that very humanity also involves being you know not being perfect, being flawed. Uh, so Garfield was very very you know vocally anti-slavery and yet he also you know said and wrote some things privately that that we would think of today as not very appropriate or not very politically correct uh, about black americans but um uh you know that was not uncommon at the time uh but he just but he still was was very 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 vocally anti-slavery he believed slavery was an abomination to the law and to god so on this podcast, we've had episodes on abolitionists like William Lloyd Garrison or Frederick Douglass. Um, was Garfield, especially when he got to Williams College in Massachusetts and imbuing that abolitionist sentiment, was he an abolitionist all, along the lines of someone like William Lloyd Garrison, who was extremely strident and utterly uncompromising? I would say no, only because he, he never actually used the term abolitionist. Garfield never called himself an abolitionist because there were some political connotations around that word, uh, even by the 1850s when Garfield was was sort of having this political awakening. So he never really called himself an abolitionist, but he did write and 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 say very frequently, you know, that he, that he viewed slavery as 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 you know the not only the root cause of the Civil War when that came, but as something that 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 was you know that was un, illegal and and immoral, um, but you know, being called an abolitionist at that time, as I say, had a political connotation around it uh, that Garfield was was you know aware of and and perhaps careful not to to use on himself. If you read all of his diary entries and his letters where he's making these very strident statements against slavery, uh, he also never says, "I am an abolitionist," even though he did say when he went to Williams College that he wanted to get into the abolitionist atmosphere. So he experienced that. Uh, it solidified what he already felt, and yet he also made the, the the very conscious decision not to apply that term to himself. So when he's when he's done with Williams College, where does Garfield go, and what does he do? After Williams, he comes back here to Northeast Ohio. Uh, he gets a job teaching at the Western Reserve Eclectic Institute, which is now Hiram College. Uh, so he teaches there, and then uh, not too long after that, actually, is also hired to be the what they called at the time the principal of the school. Um, so basically, what we would think of today as like the, a college president. Uh, so while he's in his you know late twenties or so, he's a he's a he's teaching and is the president of that institution that eventually becomes Hiram College. And he was there until 1859. Uh, in 1859, he he agreed to stand for election to the Ohio State Senate as a Republican. He won election to the state Senate, uh, and then that became that was sort of what we would think of today as like a part-time job. So he would spend part of his time down in Columbus in state Senate sessions, and then the rest of his time up here in Northeast Ohio, uh, teaching and 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 administering the uh, the eclectic institute. Uh, and then he did those two things simultaneously until going into the army uh, in the summer of 1861 at the beginning of the Civil War. 
So by the time that he's there at Hiram College, do, is he married? Does he have a family? He, he married in 1858. He married Lucretia Rudolph, who was also a, a, an alum of the Western Reserve Eclectic Institute. Uh, in fact, her father was one of the founders. Zeb Rudolph was his name, was one of the fathers, uh, uh, one of the founders, excuse me, of, of the, uh, the Western Reserve Eclectic Institute, which was a, an institution that was affiliated with the Disciples of Christ, that same denomination that, that Garfield grew up in, as well as, as Lucretia as well. So they married in 1858. Uh, and uh, and of course remained married until until his death. The Civil War breaks out. Uh, secession starts in the fall of 1860. The war breaks out in 1861. Where's James Garfield during this at the very beginning of the Civil War, and what's he doing? Well, he was he was here in Northeast Ohio, and and of course sometime in Columbus as well. In fact, he was in the state. Uh, he was in the, the state legislature's chamber uh, in February of 1861 when President-elect Abraham Lincoln passed through Columbus and spoke to the, uh, to the, uh, to the Ohio legislature. Uh, Garfield was, uh, you know, already talking about, uh, once the war started, about getting into the army, uh, you know, feeling that he, he was obligated to do his part. Um, and so, uh, of course, a lot of a lot of officers, a, a lot of soldiers were actually volunteers for their state. Um, so Garfield offered his services to the governor of Ohio uh, and eventually got a, a, a lieutenant colonelcy of a regiment that became the 42nd Ohio, uh, which actually Garfield helped raise uh, from, among other places, some of his students at Hiram. Uh, who actually, you know, signed up to fight under him. And so he did help raise this regiment, and then he was the lieutenant colonel, and then soon after the colonel of the regiment. So he was the, he was a, the commander of the 42nd Ohio for a time, uh, and then later became a, an infantry brigade commander, and then on to a, um, uh, once he became a, he was promoted to brigadier general, and then became the chief of staff to the Army of the Cumberland, which was one of the major Union field armies. Yeah, tell us a little bit more about his Civil War career. He was in the Western Theater, is that what it sounds like? And yeah, he fought in the West, yep. And his he was what was he doing in in those particular jobs and was he connected or did he get to know any other well-known Union generals in the West like US Grant? Sure, he 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 to my knowledge did not meet Grant uh while they were both serving uh, in the Western Theater, uh, certainly everybody had heard of Grant after after early 1862 with the captures of Fort Henry and Fort Donelson, and Grant became kind of the one of the most popular people in the country at that point. But uh, Garfield, uh, as I said, commanded the 42nd Ohio Volunteer Infantry, so he was an infantry regimental commander for a time. Uh, he then, you know, uh, he he fought a battle called Middle Creek down in Kentucky in January of 1862, which was a victory. Uh, he had never led troops in, in battle before and went up against Confederates that were actually being led by uh, a guy named Humphrey Marshall, who was a West Pointer. Uh, so Garfield, of course, not having any military experience, you know, he read Napoleonic histories and he studied uh, textbooks on tactics and strategy. That's how he learned, you know, he kind of taught himself how to be a soldier. And then he went, goes up against Humphrey Marshall, who has more troops and ha is, has a West Point education uh, and, and army experience. And Garfield actually defeats Marshall at Middle Creek, a, a really a relatively small battle, but 
in early 1862, union victories were were not uh, as plentiful as a lot of people right. they, thought. They, they were few be. and far between, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so Garfield kind of became for a for a, a time sort of a, a, a you know a quasi celebrity simply because he had led Union troops in a, in a victorious battle. Um, so that's what led to his promotion to brigadier, one-star general. Uh, then he was appointed the, the commander of an infantry brigade. Uh, he led that for, for a time uh, and then, was, uh, then, was, then became a staff officer. He was uh, uh, appointed as the chief of staff to the Army of the Cumberland. That was commanded by William S. Rosecrans, another Ohioan. <clears throat> and um, he was uh, with Rosecrans through the Battle of Chickamauga, which was uh, September of 1863, actually a, a very bloody battle, a Union defeat. Um, that was the battle at which General George Thomas became known as the Rock of Chickamauga. Uh, and there's actually some evidence that Garfield might be the one that actually uh, applied that nickname to him. Uh, but anyway, Garfield, uh, by the time Chickamauga came about, Garfield was a staff officer. He also at that point had been elected to Congress. So he was a congressman elect at that point. Uh, and so, uh, you know, he he could have, you know, demanded a, you know, a safer uh, assignment, you know, kind of away from the front lines because he was leaving to go to Congress. And in fact, um, as the staff, as the chief of staff, to the Army of the Cumberland at Chickamauga, you know, undertook this very famous ride under heavy enemy fire to deliver uh, orders and information to Thomas and, you know, reported back that Thomas was standing like a rock. And perhaps that's where the Rock of Chickamauga name came from. But at any rate, Garfield acquitted himself overall very well during the war for uh, someone who had no military experience prior to, to entering the Army and being, you know, really what is sort of looked down on as a political general, meaning he got his commission because he knew the governor because he was a state senator and, you know, he had connections uh, and yet actually acquitted himself uh, pretty well. As the war ends in 1865, is Garfield still then in Congress and does he take up those activities as his the primary thing he's doing then in life? Yeah, he left the army at uh, at at the end of 1863. So the war's still going on for another year and a half or so. Uh, and he actually, you know, he'd been elected to Congress. Of course, he hadn't been home. He hadn't been campaigning or anything like. That. He was elected to Congress while he was in the field with the army. And you know, he kind of had this internal struggle uh, about, yeah, you know, should he go to Congress uh, or should he stay in the army? Because of course, nobody knew how long the war was going to last. And uh, at one point when he was on a, a visit to Washington, he, in fact, did get a, uh, uh, according to his recollection, got a, uh, a meeting with Lincoln, with, with President Abraham Lincoln, and explained this feeling that he was having about not being sure what to do. And Lincoln told Garfield, please go to Congress. I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but please go to Congress because I have more generals than I know what to do with, but I don't have enough reliable Republican votes in Congress. <laughs> uh -huh. uh, and so Garfield then recollects in this letter that, you know, he did not feel it appropriate to consult his own preference when the president had asked him to go to Congress. And so that leads, you know, at least leads you to believe that maybe he was thinking of staying in the army and then the, the president asked him to go to Congress. And so that's what he does. And, and he stayed in the House of Representatives then up until he was elected president in 1880. So he's in Congress then, as you say, from 1863, 1864 on. Uh, the Republican Party, sometimes people <clears throat> Um, are under the impression that, you know, there is a Republican Party and therefore all Republicans think alike. But our, some of our listeners or students of history know that the Republican Party, certainly by the end of the Civil War, has definite factions. 
Uh, where does Garfield fit in the Republican Party at the end of the Civil War? Right. So it's important to remember, too, uh, you know, as you say, a lot of the, your, your folks that listen, you know, are, are very well informed historically. It's important to remember, too, that, you know, this is the, the parties are not the same today as they were then. They've all gone through these sort of, you know, shifts and 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 uh competing philosophies and and all this stuff so at this at the time that garfield was active in politics and in congress the the republicans were what we would think of today as the progressives uh they were the ones you know the the, the democrats were the were the very conservative party the democrats were the ones that uh, that were um you know the Democrats were dominant in the South among Southerners who who seceded or or threatened to secede. So you know the parties are are very different now than than they than they were then. Um, Garfield, as a member of Congress, especially after the war ends, is for the most part allied with the radical Republicans. Uh, you know he he's he's very vocal about uh, the, the idea that you know Southerners brought this war upon us. Uh, and they need to they need to be to be made to understand that they have been beaten and they are a conquered people and uh, and we will ensure uh, civil and political rights for for the formerly enslaved in the South. So he was a pretty re reliable Republican for most of Reconstruction. Uh, Garfield is is interesting too in that and and this is a quote he you know this is something he said about himself was that that he was he called himself cursed because he could always see both sides of every issue. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so there were some issues where he was a little more moderate, uh, you know, where, where he, you know, he didn't necessarily, you know, toe the party line. And, and I think, especially in this day and age, that's something that we can admire somebody who was willing to, to buck their party a little bit and, and not necessarily go along with, with everything the party says or the, everything that the party wants. But as far as reconstruction policy goes, he, he was a pretty reliable, uh, radical Republican for most of that time. You mentioned though uh, earlier that of course, uh, abolition of slavery and uh, extension of civil rights to Black Americans were very important to him. But you also said that he was deeply learned in economic and financial issues. Mm -hmm. And I know, of course, and our listeners are well aware that the tariff issue was a big issue after the Civil War and kind of a defining one for the parties. Where did Garfield stand on things, uh, other things that were political issues of the day, the tariff, perhaps the expansion westward and the transcontinental railroad, all of those things? Where was Garfield? Yeah, he he was very knowledgeable about financial issues. Uh, and, and a lot of that came from, <clears throat> excuse me, his his friendship with Salmon P. Chase, uh, another Ohioan who was secretary of the Treasury under uh, Abraham Lincoln. Chase, of course, was one of those team of rivals, as as Doris Kearns Goodwin called them, one of those other Republicans who sought the nomination for president in 1860, uh, and and obviously didn't win that, and and that Lincoln brought into the cabinet as Secretary of Treasury. Uh, or uh, Chase rather was also, um, as I said, an Ohioan and and a very vocal abolitionist as well, and I'm sure that uh, was something that you know, in, in which Garfield saw Chase as kind of a, a kindred spirit. But uh, there was a period in, in during the Civil War when Garfield was in the army where he was on, he for a couple of months was kind of waiting for orders and, and waiting to see what his next assignment was going to be, that he was in Washington for a lot of that time. And he actually ended up living for a time with 
Salmon P. Chase. Um, and so he spent a lot of time talking about fiscal issues with Chase, about tariffs and taxes and, you know, raising money for the war, uh, how the, the government was funding the war, this kind of thing. Uh, and so he did spend a lot of time, and, and, and that was also when, where he met Edwin Stanton, Lincoln's Secretary of War, another Ohioan. <laughs> uh, we got a lot of Ohioans here, which is, which is perfect. Um, uh, and so he got, you know, he really got sort of a political education, you know, just sitting around the table with, with guys like Chase and, and Stanton. Probably the most notable financial issue that Garfield really spoke out about quite a bit and was passionate about was um, – uh, hard money versus soft money. And Garfield was, was very much a, a hard money gold standard, uh, you know, gold standard Republican. Uh, and so after the war, when there was all this conversation about, you know, do we keep greenbacks, you know, keep paper money in circulation? And do we start pulling those back and putting more specie out there? Uh, Garfield was one of those who was very much in favor of retiring greenbacks to the extent that it was possible and returning to specie hard money that, and, and keeping the government on, on the gold standard. Uh, the other issue that I think he really, uh, was passionate about, uh, you know, his whole career was education. Uh, and just because he was an educated man himself, his wife was very well educated, in fact. Um, he and his wife had this, you know, wonderful relationship and about built around, you know, some of their shared intellectual interests, literature and poetry and, and uh, languages, this kind of thing. Um, but he always was very vocal about the, the government needing to do more to, to, to help education. Uh, and in fact, you know, we have a, a federal Department of Education today, but in fact, it was Congressman James Garfield who first proposed a federal, what he called Bureau of Education back in the 1870s. Really? So he was, uh. yeah, he was very, very passionate about education. One of the, the stories we love to tell when visitors come see us up here in, in Mentor is uh, about Garfield coming to the dinner table uh, with his children and his, and his family uh, here at the uh, the home in, in mentor and bringing books to the table and making the children take spelling tests and uh you know reading uh, wow. shakespeare and <laughs> you know reciting poetry and all this kind of stuff at the at the at the dinner table and of course that's a far cry from you know today when you know we we sit down and of course the first thing we always ask is you know how was your day what did you do you know how was school or where did you go and this kind of stuff and instead so, of here's an extra spelling people. test <laughs> yeah that's right yeah we don't get a lot we don't get a lot of parents probably giving their kids spelling tests at the although maybe during the covid you know the covid uh lockdowns there when when a lot of kids were you know we're doing school at home. Maybe they were having spelling tests at dinner, but but uh, we tend to think of uh, that as, as not something that a lot of people are doing today, I think. Before we continue with our conversation, I think it's important to take a moment and tell you about our undergraduate honors program in the liberal arts here at Ashland University. Hi, I'm Rich Police, Associate Director of Student Programs at the Ashbrook Center. The Ashbrook Scholar Program is an honors program located at Ashland University for undergraduate students with an interest in politics, history, and economics. Modeled after a classical liberal education, you will read the great texts, not textbooks. Your classes will be conversations, not lectures. Conversations with other students, with your professors, and with great thinkers and statesmen from throughout human history. If you or a young person you know are passionate about life's important questions, if you want an education that emphasizes discovery, 
If you value liberal education and the principles of freedom it upholds, then this is the place for you. To learn more, visit us online at ashbrookscholar.org. So how does Congressman James Garfield become President James Garfield? Not that many presidents come straight out of the U.S. House of Representatives. Uh, he's the only one, in fact, that has ever done that thus far. Uh, he's the only president that, 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 that was elected to the presidency while a sitting member of the House. So how does that happen? So well, it's so it's interesting in that, um, and again, it's a very long story, and this is a whole another podcast episode, probably. So I'll, I'll try to be as brief as I can. But um, Garfield actually had been elected to the U.S. Senate in in early 1880. Now, of course, at this time, people did not directly elect their own senators. Senators were elected by the state legislatures, and so Garfield was uh, in in early 1880. The Ohio legislature elected Garfield to the U.S. Senate. But of course, he would not take that seat for almost an, another year. So he had another year to sit in, in the House, and then at the big, early 1881, he would go to the Senate. One of the people who had supported Garfield for the Senate was John Sherman, who at that time was a former Ohio senator himself, and then at that time was serving as Secretary of the Treasury under President Rutherford B. Hayes. Again, more Ohioans here. So Ohio was the center of the political universe there for, for quite some time. Um, so Sherman supported Garfield for the Senate, and then there was kind of a, you know, a quid pro quo, if, if you want to call it that, where Garfield agreed to support Sherman's interest in the Republican presidential nomination in 1880. So Garfield agrees, even though he, he, he's pretty sure Sherman probably won't get the nomination, he, he agrees. Uh, and as more time goes by, Sherman keeps asking more and more of Garfield in this capacity. Uh, to the point where he then asks Garfield to go to Chicago in June of 1880 uh, to the Republican National Convention and sort of manage Sherman's campaign on the floor and then eventually also give the speech nominating Sherman for the, uh, for the, the presidential nomination uh, at that convention. And so Garfield agrees to all of this. He doesn't – he agrees sort of grudgingly, but he agrees. He holds up his end of the bargain goes to Chicago. Uh, most people at that point thought that the Republican nominee would be Ulysses S. Grant, who was, of course, had already been president for two terms, uh, had left for, for four years, and now was interested in, in coming back because he felt the party had kind of lost its way a little bit under President Hayes. Uh, so, so Grant is kind of the assumed front runner. Uh, the other candidate whose really only mission, only mission is to keep Grant from getting nominated is James Blaine, uh, Blaine as the, uh, the, the, at that point, a senator from the state of Maine. Yes, Blaine was from Maine. Yes, that's correct. You know, people always kind of laugh at that and think we're making it up, but it's true. Um, and so, uh, and so Garfield was actually fairly close with Blaine, but he again had agreed to support Sherman. So Garfield goes to the convention and um, gives a really powerful speech for John Sherman and then when the voting starts, people start to realize none of these three major candidates, Grant, Blaine, or Sherman, are, are have enough votes to get the nomination. And so the more ballots go on, the more people start to realize nobody's budging here. We need a compromise candidate, meaning a candidate that everybody finds acceptable, um, you know, everybody likes. He's not going to offend everybody. We think he can win. 
and so they start going through ballot after ballot after ballot after ballot. And finally, uh, people start moving to James Garfield as this potential compromise candidate. And, uh, and so on the 36th ballot, in fact, Garfield won that nomination, becoming the first uh, person in American history to actually be present at the convention that nominated him uh, because he did not expect to, to be nominated. Um, there had been a few conversations, uh, you know, Garfield was not completely unknown and he was not completely unaware that people thought maybe if this happened, he might be the guy. Um, but he did not seem to think that it really was was likely because I think if he had thought that this could really happen, I don't think he would have gone to the convention because it was you know considered bad yeah. form to seem too ambitious for the office or anything like that. So I think if he really thought this was possible, uh, even though he knew that some of these conversations had been taking place, uh, I don't think he would have been in Chicago if he really thought that was possible. So I do think he was he was taken off taken off guard and and surprised by the nomination. And then in the general election, after he's nominated on, as you said, I think on the 36th ballot, um, mm -hmm. in the general election, he defeats which the Democrat? The Democratic candidate that year is also fascinating. It's Winfield Scott Hancock, who is a, uh, a career army officer, uh, a West Point graduate, um, you know, severely wounded fighting for the Union at the Battle of Gettysburg and, and wounded at other places as well. Uh, the, the, the Republicans had this tactic after the Civil War, which was sort of uh, referred to as waving the bloody shirt, meaning, you know, anytime they ran against a Democrat, they could very easily point to the Democrats as the party of secession, the party of treason, the party of Jefferson Davis, and the party that was responsible for the deaths of 300,000 or more Northern soldiers. Um, and, and that was an easy way to to campaign against Democrats. Um, this election in 1880 was the only election in American history where both candidates were union veterans. So James Garfield cannot wave the bloody shirt <laughs> at Winfield Scott Hancock, who has literally bled and nearly died fighting for the union. Uh, and so Garfield has a very tall order uh, in front of him, which is to defeat Hancock, especially as Reconstruction is either, depending on who you talk to, ending or has ended. Um, the Democrats seem to be on the rise again. Uh, you know, in 1876, Hayes, Republican Hayes became president, but he did not win the popular vote. Um, you know, he lost the popular vote, and there was this disputed election, which Garfield played a role in as well, um, that, that, you know, gave the Electoral College victory to Hayes by one vote. Um, Garfield has to now run against Hancock, who's a, you know, a, seems to be a very strong general election candidate because he doesn't have a political record to criticize. You know, they, uh, you know, they can't beat him over the head for, oh, he voted for this or he voted for that because he never, you know, he's been in the army his whole life. Uh, and so it was a very, very, very close election. In fact, one of the perhaps the closest election now that I think about it uh, in American history, uh, the, the closest popular vote victory, Garfield ends up winning the popular vote by something less than 10,000 votes out of seven or eight you know, million cast. Wow, so very close. So he's elected and of course, as you say, in the fall of 1880, takes office early in 1881, 
as you said, he's only president for six and a half months. I know that he is shot on July 2nd, 1881. He's in New Jersey, I think, if I recall correctly, when he's shot. Is that right? He was shot in D.C. He died in, in New Jersey. Okay. Mm -hmm. Tell us, what were the circumstances of Garfield's assassination? So Garfield, who, you know, who we've talked a lot about, you know, how he felt about civil rights. Uh, he gives an inaugural address about a, a third of which he dedicates to talking about civil rights. Uh, and so you would be, you know, you would think that, you know, he planned to really try to fulfill some of the promises of reconstruction as president. Uh, in fact, the, 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 the thing that becomes, uh, the thing that becomes really the primary focus of his very brief presidency is not civil rights, it's civil service reform. Um, so there was, you know, at this time, the, ever since the Jacksonian era, uh, there was the, what we called the patronage system or the spoils system where the party that wins elections can appoint whoever they want to hunt, you know, thousands and thousands of jobs, postmasters, uh, consuls, you know, all these different jobs. Uh, and, and a lot of politicians really liked that system because it helped them build bases of power. It helped them, you know, hand out favors that made people beholden to them. So a lot of elected officials really liked that system, but there was starting to be this movement, especially during the Hayes years for civil service reform, which was the idea that people should be qualified for jobs. They should have to take a test. They should have to, you know, be loyal to the constitution, not to their party. Um, and, you know, Hayes, President Hayes did try to, to, to move this forward and, and didn't get very far. Um, and so there were two factions of the Republican Party at this time, the stalwarts who, you know, and the, they were the stalwarts and the half breeds. Uh, and they really weren't that far apart on most issues. It was really civil service reform and the fact that the stalwarts had wanted Grant to be president again in 18, in 18, you know, get the nomination and, and be elected again in 1880. And the half breeds did not. Um, so those are really the only two major issues between the two, but the stalwarts wanted to keep the, the patronage system and uh, the half breeds were at least willing to start talking about reforming the civil service. The guy who ended up shooting James Garfield is a, is a, is a guy named Charles Guiteau uh, Guiteau, we have to say, you know, there was certainly some mental illness at play here. You know, he, he was definitely, uh, you know, mentally, uh, disturbed. Um, but he also considered himself a stalwart Republican. And so he, in his mind, these sort of delusions of grandeur that he had, he believed he had played a very important role in Garfield winning New York, which was the critical state that made Garfield president. Uh, and that he therefore was entitled to a job. And so he traveled to Washington. Uh, he stood in line at the White House, as did all, thousands of others, to try to plead his case for a job. And, um, you know, he, he wanted to be the American consul to, to Vienna or to Paris, which of course was, was ridiculous. He had no qualifications for, for either of those. Um, and, uh, you know, he eventually was told by the State Department to, that's enough, you're not going to get this job, so please, please stop coming around. 
and uh, he decided that God was telling him that it was you know the only way to to save the country and to save the Republican Party was to kill Garfield because that would make Chester A. Arthur president, who was the vice president. Arthur was from the stalwart wing of the party. And so this really was a political assassination. Yes, there's mental illness at play, certainly, but there also is a political motivation. And so it really was this factionalism in the Republican Party over civil service reform that eventually led to, to Garfield being shot. A lot of history books will say, you know, Guiteau was a disappointed office seeker, which he was, but there was a lot more to it than that. Mm. And I think some of our listeners would be um, are, would be puzzled or fascinated to know Abraham Lincoln has already been assassinated, of course, 20 years earlier, you know, 15, 16 years earlier. Um, how in the world did the assassin get close enough to Garfield to be able to actually shoot him? Sure. So so Guiteau actually just walked up to Garfield in a train station and 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 with who had, you know, he was actually walking with James Blaine, who uh, had become his secretary of state. Uh, Guiteau just walked right up to him and shot him twice in the back. Um, you know, Lincoln's assassination was viewed as really the last kind of tragic act of the Civil War. And so those circumstances were viewed as being so you know, outside the norm, so extraordinary that um, nothing like that could ever happen again. And and you know, there was this this view, you know, that that hey, this is this is we are a, a we are a republic. We're not a monarchy. The president is one of the people. Uh, he should be able to walk, you know, freely among the people that that he's that he's been elected to lead. And so Garfield, as president, would would leave the White House and just walk down the street in D.C. and go go to see Blaine or go you know go to wherever he needed to go, uh, and didn't have any guards or anything with him. Um, on July second, eighteen eighty one, he and Blaine are walking through a train station in Washington. Guiteau, uh, who'd been basically stalking Garfield for you know a couple of weeks, uh, as as this plan developed in his mind to to kill Garfield. Um, was able to, as I say, approach and just and you know pull the trigger uh, right behind Garfield, shoot him almost point blank range, uh, and and Guiteau really made no effort to no real effort to escape. He knew that you know he would be caught right away, which he was, and he said, "I did it, and I'll go to jail for it. Uh, I am a stalwart, and Arthur will be president." And Guiteau, in his mind, uh, believed that once Garfield died, Chester A. Arthur would become president. Arthur would recognize Guiteau's great contribution to saving the Republican Party and saving the country, and he would pardon Guiteau for killing Garfield and then would give Guiteau whatever job he wanted. And of course, it did not work out that way for, for Guiteau, but um, there, even, uh, even 20 years after Garfield's assassination, when President McKinley is, is shot, there still is no gu real guard around the president. It was only after McKinley that, that they finally decided that Okay, some we need to protect these presidents. There clearly is a danger to them uh, when they're out in public, and and so that's when when there finally started to be some protection around the presidents. And then, of course, there's only been the additional uh, assassination of President Kennedy, and of course that was from a distance with a high-powered rifle and all this. So we've not had another person get up really close to and 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 kill a president. We've had attempts, Ford, Reagan, of course, but uh, but um, have not you know, had anyone else approach a president and, and, and shoot and kill a president. 
Um, when Garfield dies, what is the reaction of the nation? The nation reacts much in the way they did when when Lincoln died. They uh, they poured out this 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 massive sort of sympathy and support for for Garfield's family. Uh, you know, Garfield didn't die right away. That's the other interesting thing about about Garfield is, you know, he shot on July second, but he doesn't die until September nineteenth. So he lives two and a half months. During that two and a half months. The nation is reading about this in the paper every day. The doctors are putting out medical bulletins. They are giving the nation false hope that he's going to live because the other sort of tragic part about Garfield's story is it was really the doctors that ended up killing him because eh, American doctors at this point, for the most part, were not quite on board with germ theory yet. Um, they didn't they didn't wash their hands. They didn't wash their instruments. And so as they're probing Garfield's wounds with, you know, dirty fingers and dirty instruments, they introduce infection into his body and the infection is eventually what kills him. And, and it, that's why it takes two and a half months for him to die because this sort of ultimately sepsis basically is, you know, raging through his body and it takes a while to kill him. Um, so people are reading about this every day in the paper. They're reading these medical bulletins. And so they're, the people around Garfield, his family, his doctors, were not surprised when he died. They could see that this was coming, but the general public was shocked because they thought he was going to heal and, and be back in the Oval Office at some point. Um, so there's this great outpouring of sympathy and support there. You know, he lies in state. He, he had been moved to New Jersey about two weeks before he died. They were hoping that the sea, you know, the, the, the breeze and the sea air would would prove restorative to him, which it did not, of course. Uh, he lies and stayed in the Capitol building. There's a massive funeral in Cleveland on Public Square. Uh, they say it was a bigger funeral even than Lincoln's. Um, and the American public also pours out their sympathy to the Garfield family in a financial sense in that people start making donations to the family into uh, this, what they called at the time, a subscription fund. And that fund eventually amassed about $360,000 that was turned over to Lucretia Garfield, his widow. Uh, and $360,000 in the mid 1880s is, you know, yeah, that's eight, a, a large million sum. dollars or something like that today. So it's a it's a very sizable sum. So the the nation sort of you know showed their their you know their sorrow that way as well. And of course, that money allowed Mrs. Garfield to live the you know she lived another. 36 plus years. She had five children to care for. James Garfield's mother was still alive. Her father was still alive. So she had a big family to provide for and that money allowed her to do that. Uh, and so that was another way that, that the country kind of poured out this, this sympathy for Garfield. So yeah, his, his death was viewed as, as a tragedy on par with that of Lincoln at the time. You've had a chance obviously to study Garfield and live, <clears throat> literally live with him at the site. What to you is the most surprising thing that you've discovered and learned about James Garfield? You know, I, when I got here 14 years ago, of course, I, you know, I knew who James Garfield was, but I didn't know that much about him. Uh, I was, you know, coming here. Uh, it was part of my job. It was, you know, uh, it was a career move uh, to get, you know, I, my wife and I grew up in Pennsylvania, so we were getting closer to home, uh, and that kind of thing. Um, and, and, you know, I was fascinated by, by anybody who had fought in the civil war, because that was kind of the history I had always been interested in. 
and so when I got here and started really learning who this guy was, uh, I started to realize, wow, he's, he is a fascinating figure that people clearly don't pay as much attention to as they should. And I think the thing that has really, really stuck out for me was this idea that just how much good might he have done had he been alive to serve a full term as president, a full two terms perhaps. Um, you know, I, and, and especially in the civil rights arena, I think is the, the area where I'm most interested in kind of speculating about just how different things may have ended up. Uh, it's entirely possible, of course, that he, he wouldn't have been successful in that arena, whether because the, the, the political makeup of the Congress or the mood of the country or, you know, you know, uh, other events in, in, in other parts of the world or, or whatever may have interfered. But it's just, you know, it's it's kind of fascinating to me to, to realize that, wow, this guy who people sort of write off as a footnote in history because he was president so briefly, he could have been he could have been on Mount Rushmore. He could have been one of the all time greats. Maybe he wouldn't have been. I'm not suggesting that it's, you know, a slam dunk that Garfield would have been, a you know, on par with a, with a Lincoln or a Washington or an FDR or anything like that. But who knows? Maybe he would have. I, I think certainly the. That the potential was there in terms of his standing on a lot of not every issue that he was not great on you know some issues uh, by our modern standards, um, but I think that he was uh, he was definitely on the right side of the civil rights issue, and it's just uh, fascinating to think about what may have been had he lived. So I think that for me that's the thing that always draws me in is wow how different the things might have been in the civil rights er arena had Garfield lived. Fascinating. If our listeners want to connect with the James A. Garfield Historical Site, they want to visit or they want to visit you online, where where should they go? Sure. We of course it's we have a website like everybody. Uh it's uh NPS like National Park Service, nps.gov slash J A G A or JAGA as we say. Uh it's just the first two letters of James and the first two letters of Garfield. So nps.gov slash JAGA. And then uh, uh, we, of course, have social media. We're very active on social media, which has been a great tool for small parks like this one that are trying to compete with the Yellowstones and Yosemites of the world. Uh, you know, it's been a great tool for us to, to sort of put the word out about Garfield and try to get people interested. So uh, people can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at uh, GarfieldNPS. Again, NPS, like National Park Service, at Garfield NPS. Uh, and we're just right here in Menor, you know, not too far from, from Cleveland. So if you're, gonna, if you're going downtown for a baseball game or a football game or, uh, you know, you're, you're coming to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or something like that, we're, we're 30 minutes from downtown Cleveland. And uh, we hope people will uh, want to come here and, and learn more about President Garfield. Fascinating. Uh, thank you, Todd Arrington, so much for taking the time to be with us today on the American Idea to get a, a little better acquainted with this really important and, as you say, uh, could have been what could have been with James Garfield, but in fact, what was a great and interesting public career. Todd, thanks for joining us today on the American Idea. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hi, I'm Jeff Sikinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, where we discuss the ideas, people, and events that have made America what it is today. 
We believe that by understanding our history and our principles, we can better live up to the promise of the American founding and preserve our ongoing experiment in self-government. Welcome to the American Idea.